Well, when you think about Father's Day, it provokes all kinds of different emotions, doesn't it? And you actually have to go through the loss of a father before you really realize how valuable a father is in your life. I can tell you that because I've personally experienced that. My father died at age 56 in 2003, uh, being sprayed with Agent Orange while he was in Vietnam, developed stage 4 cancer in his 40s. I think my mom's watching online so she can verify this, but... He had stage four cancer, battled it for years through my high school. Dad fought through that. He was a Marine. He was just a hardcore, tough man, but he did have a tender heart. But nevertheless, uh, God gave him a few years, and then he ended up dying from the radiation that he had in his own to treat his cancer. After my dad died, of course, I was like other people, filled with questions. Why, God, did you let this happen? You know, why my dad and not the drunk out on the street? And that God never gave me an answer back. Until I was reading a book one day, and the guy said, he started asking God, why, God, why, God? And he said, it was as if God came back and said, why not you? Why not you? I began to think about that, and I thought, well, you know, why not me? I, I knew where my dad was going. I knew he knew Christ as his Savior, and I had lots of good cherished memories from my father, and so he learned to tell us to capture what we had in our life and enjoy and appreciate that short time until eternity. And if you're like me, you'll see your father. I hope your father knows Christ as Savior. That's um, a whole another issue if our parents are not believers and the pain that that brings, but we know we will see them again. And many people have said that the father is a key figure in the home. My phone is right there, and I had an article I was going to read on it. Didn't realize that till uh, we, we went on Facebook Live. But I can summarize the article for you. It was a secular article, and this is basically what it said. Dads, don't think for one moment that your life doesn't matter in the life of your children. And it gave statistics. Did you realize kids are 50% more likely to spend their life in prison without the presence and influence of a father? And it went down through the breakthrough of, of, and the breakdown of everything that fatherlessness is doing in society. And folks, you all know, I'm not going to stand up here and beat on it. You know this. Our culture, especially the culture in the West and the United States, we are in a mess we struggle gender ideology, a man, a woman. People don't even want to mention the word Father's Day because somehow it gives this patriarchal... I mean, just all of this stuff that's going on. But let's just pause for a moment, take a deep breath and say, dads are very important in our life. They are central figures. And as one person said, and he gave three analogies, the father is really like three instruments in a home. He is the compass of the family. Now, it's possible for mom to do it, but when dad has taken the lead, dad points the family in what spiritual direction that family is going to go. I mean, are we going to serve God in this house? Are we going to live with honor? Are we going to treat each other with respect? Are we going to fulfill our word? Is this the home we're going to be? Are we going to be dedicated to each other? Let me tell you something. That comes from dad. And he's not only the compass that sets the direction, he's also the thermostat. You know, the difference between the thermometer and the thermostat is one tells the temperature and the other sets the temperature. 
And dad sets the spiritual temperature in the home. Is this going to be a place that honors God's word? Is church involvement and church attendance going to be important? Is serving in our life, serving others, is that important? That is taken by the lead of dad. And then finally, but not last of all, the father is also, like it or not, for good or bad, he is a mirror in the home. And I could spend long amounts of time here saying that our identity is directly linked to that of our father. Now, for those that have a bad father or a bad home situation, let me tell you what happens. They have to struggle with rebellion in their heart because they are in rebellion against their dad and the way that their dad has treated them, things that he has done to them, and they grow up with their, in their life with anger bound up inside of them. And as a matter of fact, in the story that we're reading this morning, I'll go ahead and tell you now, David was not a really good father. As a matter of fact, uh, one of his own sons, Absalom, rebelled against him. And here, one of the reasons, is some of it's because God allowed it and even instigated it, but the other part was Absalom did something and David sent him away Someone had David bring him back home and David had that boy live right beside him for two years and never walked over to, to resolve the conflict. And Absalom was so angry at his father, King David, the man after God's own heart, because David was proud and he was arrogant. He did not want to humble himself. Obviously, you know what the story is. There were issues in his life. But Absalom became so rebellious toward his father, he set his military leader's house on fire. He went down to the gates, lied about his dad. He won the hearts of the people. He ended up overtaking his father's kingdom and chasing his dad through the wilderness like Saul and even having immoral relationships with his dad's own wives. All because of that hatred that was down in his heart. Now, when we think about that, let me share something. This just screams at us, doesn't it? We've got to deal with the relationship with our father. If you had a good father and he's here, let me tell you something. You should hug him. You should love him. You should thank him. You should give him respect. You know, kids, let me share something with you. Respect your father. It doesn't say whether he's a good one or a bad one, but respect him. God said, honor your father and your mother. He didn't say if they're good, if they're nice to you, if they do what you... He said, honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long on the earth. If you don't want to honor your father and mother, you probably won't live long. Either they'll kill you or something will happen to you, but listen to them. If you don't have a good father, then you have to come to terms with Almighty God and your dad. And sometimes that involves just it's between you and God. You know, there are some fathers it's hard to reconcile with. And trust me, I've had plenty of them throughout years that have come in. And you can tell while you're talking to them, trying to deal with issues in their family, they will have none of it. You know, how dare you say this? You're not going to confront me about that. They, they can't deal with the truth about who they are and how they behave and so forth. You just have to come to the point, if that's the case in your life, where you realize... This is just how my father is. Now, I'm going to choose to focus on the good qualities about him, and everybody has some good qualities. 
And I'm going to be thankful for that and let God deal with the rest. And if God can give you grace and peace to do that in your life, you will go a long way and it will help you tremendously. Now, that's sermon number one. It's extra. or No, no extra, I'm sorry. Uh, now for message number two. And you have in your hand a little outline, which I never do. You know why? Because when you get to point number five, you have already cooked chicken and cleaned out the garage and everything else. That's why I don't hand out bullet points. I, I have studied teaching theory. I know you're looking for that last blank and you're done. But I promise I'll be fast as, as I can. And I won't read all of this passage, but I wanted to give you an outline from it because I think it will be helpful to you. Now last week we looked at David's terrible failure. He broke four of the Ten Commandments. He had all the wives he could have wanted and he lusted after one more. He ended up with Bathsheba. She was pregnant. And he ended up having Uriah killed in the line of duty. Then he took Bathsheba for himself. Now we're going to fast forward 11 to 12 months. David is set up in the palace, or nine months, I'm sorry, eight to nine months, and he's set up in the palace and everything's all lovely, so he thought, until all of a sudden God does something and God confronts him. Now you'll have to be old-fashioned this morning and actually open God's Word. Sorry, it's just how it is on technology today. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and this is what God does. He sends the king's prophet, Nathan, to confront him. Now, I shared with you before that every king had a prophet. And the prophet's job, part of his responsibility, was to speak primarily to the king, but also to the community. And David had his Nathan, and who did Ahab have? What was his name? It started with an E. Elijah. And he hated him. Because Elijah would always tell him this is what God said. And one day Ahab said, I can't stand that man. He never says anything good about me. Well, here was Nathan. He came to David. And this is how it unfolded. The Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. Do those three words sound familiar? Eat, drink, and lie. That's what David tried to get Uriah to go back and do with Bathsheba. There's a little word play going on here. It used to eat of his morsel, drink of his cup, lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and as he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now, let me pause for a moment. If you stole someone's lamb back under Old Testament law, what was the penalty for that? It wasn't death. What was it? You would restore it either two or threefold. Uh, you would make things right with them. But there was no death penalty associated with this. However, David in his anger and rage because he was a shepherd knew what it was like to get close to a little sheep 
realized that this man who was greedy just went over and took it without cause or reason and killed it and just devastated this family. And so David sits there as the king and part of the responsibility of a king in the east was to hear out cases and he acted as a judge. He was like the chief judge of the land. So here David is just furious and says, the man shall die and not only that, what else? He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now you should underline that phrase, he had no pity. Because after this case is laid out, and by the way, this was very clever. And David, to be as wise of a man as he was, was caught in his own snare. Did you know that? Not only in this passage, but two chapters over, an elderly lady was put up to go in and telling David another story about David not being reconciled to his son, him being unwilling to go to Absalom. And David's caught in that story as well, by the way. The man shall die. Now, notice what happens. Nathan now is going to share with, Nathan, with David, Buddy, you are the man. Have you ever had those moments where you have so deceived yourself and we have gotten along so fine that all of a sudden now we are confronted and we are told you're the man. Now we could take time and go through if we were in a classroom we would talk about different times people are exposed maybe you would say that or laid bare and how they respond to that. Now, by the way, this, is, this tells a lot about our character. Hear me carefully if you don't hear anything else today. And I believe this. You know, there's a difference between secret things that we hide and so forth and private things that we do. There's a distinction between secrecy and privacy, okay? And everybody's entitled to some privacy in their life. However, Secrecy in the sense of sin, we're talking breaking Ten Commandments, doing things God tells us we shouldn't do, looking at things you shouldn't online and, and on your digital footprint. And by the way, please don't think that's a secret. Because every time you tap on something online, kids, you better listen to me. Every time you tap on something, your phone has an IP address and it is logged in a registry and people see every little thing that you do. And I don't care how many times you erase it on your browser and you try to cover your behind, you are exposed because someone sees exactly what you click on. It may not be your parents, but I want to assure you someone sees it. And one day, it can be used against you. And that is coming very, very soon. So, caution. But when we are exposed, how do we respond to that? There's a couple of different ways. Number one is we become defensive. Oh, how dare you confront me? On, you know, or we become blame-shifting. Well, it wasn't my fault. Someone else really did it. Or to get right down to it, we can, in fact, own it. And whether you like David as a character in God's Word or you hate him, one thing you have to do is respect him. Because when David was confronted with his sin, what did he do? Nathan said, you are the man. 
And David knew that he was exactly the man. Notice what Nathan says. You are the man, and thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. That would be like giving him the Democrats and the Republicans today. God allowed them to unite around him. It was a miracle. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Now that's an interesting phrase. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Why would God say that? Because he broke the Ten Commandments that he was supposed to be enforcing. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, this is the most scary verse in this whole section. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You had Uriah slain with the sword, David. The sword will never depart from your house. Now notice what he says in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this and the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Wow. By the way, that is a picture of our God. Did you know that? Now, God is gracious. God is loving. But I have to say this, and we've lost this today. God is holy. God is righteous and God is just. We will never be able to hide in our secrecy and in our sin. God will expose us. Some will never be exposed in this life. They'll be able to hide it all the way until either the judgment seat of Christ, where we as believers give an account for our life, or the great white throne judgment, where all unsaved people will give an account for the secrets of their heart, the secrets of their life, and according to their works. So, there will be a time when everyone is exposed. Here, David is allowed to be exposed in his life. He owns it and admits it, but God tells him there will be consequences because of your breaking four of the Ten Commandments. Now, notice what happens. What does David do? He hears all this. Look at what I gave you. Look at how gracious I've been to you. I've been merciful. I would have given you even more. You had all this and yet you wanted more. And now he goes and he lays it on him. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You are the man. You're exactly right. I'm the man. I sinned against the Lord. You know, this is staggering. Here is this dad, this man, who's willing to own the failure in his life. I am the man. I have sinned against the Lord. Now notice what Nathan says to him, because God is very quick. And here's something you have to see about the nature of God. 
after God confronts us and after we confess, what does God do? Does He wait nine months to tell us what He's going to do? No, praise God. David, no more than got out of his mouth, I have sinned against the Lord. That Nathan comes right back and this is what he says. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, and the Lord has also put away your sin. Now stop right there. I have sinned against... This man, David, was guilty of four of the Ten Commandments. Can you all name them? Coveting. What else had he done? He had lied. He had, he had committed adultery and he committed killing. He had killed an innocent man. Four of the Ten Commandments, he, he dashed. And David, the moment he confessed, I have sinned against the Lord, what did God do? God said, the Lord has also put away your sin. He took it away. Now let me tell you something really encouraging here. These are some pretty major charges. You realize any of, any of those, especially the adultery and the, murder, the killing unjust, those were death penalties. And David knew that he had been had. And so he just says, okay, God, I agree. I personally think he expected God to kill him. I think he expected that he was just going to go ahead and die because here he had pronounced a death sentence on someone who took an innocent lamb. And here David has took more than a lamb. He took a man's life and made their family go through this and so forth. And God comes straight back and says, I forgive you. Now I want you to know something. Those are some wonderful words. And if you have ever really and I mean this really messed up, and you hear Almighty God's Word say, and I have forgiven your sin, those may be the sweetest words in the Bible. And this teaches us several lessons about God, doesn't it? We'll get to that in a moment, but look at how gracious God is to David, and not just to David, but to us as well. Now, notice what happens. God pardons him, but now he's going to share that there's going to be some punishment in verses 14 and 15. Uh, Nevertheless, he says, because you did this, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. I forgive you, David. You messed up, and I'm going to put this away from you, but, and you shall, shall not die. Nevertheless, because you did this deed and have uttered this, and scorn the Lord, the child who has been born to you, he will die. I'm going to intervene, and the child that Bathsheba has will die. Now, let's not get off in questions right here, because I could start asking them, well, the child was innocent, why would God take the child's innocence? The point is, this was a judgment upon David. And yes, God was going to use this infant as a point to judge King David. We'll have to talk about that some other time, whether you think that's fair or not. I, I I can't stand up here and defend God. I don't have to. He did what he knew he was going to do, and this is what he chose to do. And then Nathan turned and walked out of his house. Now David doesn't just stop there. He actually utters a prayer. And what does he say? Therefore, verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. He fasted, went in, and lay all night on the ground. And you know the story. The child's life ends up being taken. And then Bathsheba ends up in verse 24 and 25. Uh, 
He goes and comforts his wife. She becomes pregnant again. And now she's going to have who we know as Solomon, but God named him as Jedidiah because God was going to take all of this problem and sin and murder and conspiracy and God was going to turn it around for something good. This is called the grace of God, folks. Bathsheba was in the line of Jesus Christ. So God took this relationship, which was horrible and caused judgment and problems and pain, and ended up blessing it and using it in a great way. In fact, she is mentioned or alluded to in the genealogies of Jesus. Fascinating how God would choose to use this sin and reverse it in such a great way. And then there is a, the last section here, verses 26 through 31, is an account where David's military goes in and they fight and encircle this other mighty nation. And Joab calls out and says, Tell David to come here so that he can get the credit for overtaking this, lest the people think that I'm the one who's going to do it. By the way, that's a loyal man, isn't it? And so he brings David. David goes. They win the victory. Why is that even in chapter 12? Here's the reason. Because it is showing you that even though David sinned, and even though David's punishment is being carried out, that God's blessing was still upon David as king, even though he had really blew it. And that's called hope. God was still fighting the battles for King David. Now, in light of all that, what are some lessons that you and I learn from this tragic mistake in David's life? What are some lessons? I'm going to give you five. And here they are. You, you fill in the blank or just let it absorb in your mind. Number one, it is easier to see the sin of others instead of seeing the sin of our own. You know, it was interesting. You can, you can talk to people who really, really can point out sins in other people's lives. Failures, shortcomings. But you know what? It is so difficult to see their own. And the lesson that we see about David, and this is the lesson we want to see, we want it to be easier for us to see our own sin than it is to see others. And a good way to do that is, when you see someone who has really messed up, rewind your life. Go back in your life and put yourself in a different position. Folks, it is the grace of God that I am even standing here today. You, you do not understand, and I won't go into glory and in ter- terrible things, but we grew up in a very, very rough place. I'm talking by the time before we were 10 years old, awful things had been exposed in our life. It's a, it's a wonder. It is the, it's the grace of God that first of all we lived, and second of all we were able to even Uh, be used by God. He spared us. And in some ways, that is a blessing in my own life. And I want to tell you why. Because I saw enough failures in my own life and in the lives of people who were close to me that I realized how easy it is to mess up. If, If any of us ever get on a spiritual high horse and think that we are untouchable and unbreakable and we cannot fall because 
we are in such a place in our life that we're on a spiritual high and nothing can happen. I want to tell you something. You are on a dangerous tightrope. Because we are just one issue away from being led down a trail that ends in disaster. So instead of us focusing on other people, we should stop and thank God that that hasn't happened to us or He's protected us from it or we can see it. But this is a danger. A second lesson we learn is this, that we must learn to own our own sin. We must learn to own it. David teaches us a fabulous lesson here. If you want forgiveness, if you want restoration, what is the only response God accepts? I am the man. God, I I am the one. Yes, I did that. This is what 1 John 1.9 means for a Christian. If, If we Christians say the same thing about our sin that God does, that's what confession is. If we say the same thing about our sin that God does, He is faithful and just at that moment of confession to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That means even the sins that we don't know we've committed. I could get into a nice theological discussion about sins of omission and commission. Some that you do intentionally and some that you do unintentionally. I am convinced that many Christians sin unintentionally and don't even know that they sin. But God forgives us of them. Did you hear me? Cleanses us completely. And this is a lesson that we learn from David. When we own our own sin, He cleanses. But we must learn not to blame shift. By the way, how easy is it to blame shift? Let's say you're sitting at your office. And let's just say you work in computers. And you know how to do things on the computer. And all of a sudden, you're at fault and you mess up. However, because you're in technology and you're able to switch a few wires, click some things here, you can now blame that problem on either the network or you can blame it on somebody else or you can take the blame off of yourself. And you just manipulate things just a little bit and you go, well, I can kind of get my hide out of this and you, you go through with it. Now let me ask you a question. Does God bless that? Does He? So I don't care what God blesses. I know what my boss would do. Okay, well, God is the one that we're working for. I'm trying to help us theologically think that as believers, we belong to Him. We work for Him. And what does Paul tell us? You know, when we go to work, we don't go to work for our boss. We go to work for God. He's the one watching us work and what we do. We're working not as men pleasers. And so when they see us with their eyes, we're serving God with our heart. Okay, we have to be accountable and have character and own it. Don't blame that. When we mess up, when we sin, when we do things that we shouldn't, what do we do? We own it. I could go all the way through Scripture and talk about people that blame shift, they deny, they twist, they turn, but God does not bless that. He blesses honesty in our character when we just say, I'm the one that did that. By the way, that's hard to do, isn't it? One of the reasons is because we let people know we're frail. Can I apply this to dads? Boy, let me tell you. 
you know, we're all dads, we're all human, and we all mess up. My dad messed up. My dad made mistakes. I have messed up. I, I continue to mess up and make mistakes in parenting with my boys. I'm sure I'll get on the age that some of you are and look back and say, well, I should have, would have, could have. But, you know, when you're in the moment, you're learning every step and every day and moment of life. But one thing I hope, and I hope at my grave, that my children will at least be able to say, one thing I can say about Dad was when he messed up, he was willing to say he did, and he was willing to own it. He didn't try to powder coat them. But now, now I joke with them and blame them, but I, I end up taking responsibility for it. I'm talking about down in the depths of seriousness here. That we, we will humble ourselves and own our own mistakes. Well, that's lesson two, and I hope you get it. Because here's lesson three. When we seek forgiveness, it is found in Jesus. Now, are, are y'all with me this morning? I want you to hear me. Imagine, put yourself in David's shoes. You've coveted, you've lied, you've committed adultery, and you've taken someone's life who was innocent. And now you're standing before God and you're waiting to hear from Almighty God. And by the way, the fear of the Lord should be something that causes us to have wisdom, shouldn't it? Well, David despise the Lord, despise His Word, and now God sends someone. And David knew enough about God to know that God could get even. But when David confessed, what did God say? Your sins have been pardoned and you will not die. Wow. Does the same thing apply to us today as believers in Jesus? Absolutely it does. All of these sins that David committed were intentional and there was zero sacrifice for them. Do you understand that? David had, he had no chance at ever offering a sacrifice and being forgiven. He was totally dependent upon the Day of Atonement when the high priest offered one sacrifice for the nation and David was engaged saying that on that, on that animal is laid my four breaking of the Ten Commandments and if God accepts that, I'm forgiven. That's how they had to do it, by the way. One day a year on the Day of Atonement. But here David confesses and you hear the clearest statement, the Lord has forgiven your sin. What a blessing. By the way, I went a long time as a Christian. And I think this is very possible in our lives, especially either young Christians or Christians that don't understand God's Word. They, they don't have a good grasp of what forgiveness means, they really struggle with their salvation here. Either because, number one, they don't understand what it means and how you are to make your sins right. Or number two, they don't understand the depth of God's willingness to forgive. And I'm going to help you with that in just a moment. But God was very, very gracious in His forgiveness. The fourth lesson we learn is this, is that even when God forgives our sin, there still may be consequences. You remember when David told Nathan, the man shall repay that lamb four times? Guess how many of David's children died in his kingship? Four. Four of them died. 
Guess how many problems David had throughout his life. Folks, this was the turning point in his life. God never took his hand of judgment. It, it was interesting because there was a hand of judgment and a hand of blessing upon him. If you get to the end of 2 Samuel, you'll see a case there where David numbered the nation of Israel, which was a sin because after they took a census, they would often go back and you know bloat about how many Twitter followers they had, you know, how many people in the military. And if they had a bigger army than other people, then they would become very self-reliant. And God said, you're not the number of your horses or your people or your warriors because you are to be dependent upon me. Well, David did it. God sent down a message. And David did some other things, by the way, that made God angry. On one particular occasion, a prophet came and said, because of this particular sin, you have three options. One, you can let this deadening pestilence come. Two, let an invading army come in. Or number three, turn yourself over to God and let His judgment fall. You know what David said? He said, I don't want to be in the hands of any man. And I, I hate for the people to have to suffer like this. Let me just go into the hands of God because I trust Him more than I do people. And God did take vengeance out, but He did stop and relent His hand. God was merciful. So, Whenever you think about David and you think that David got away with his sin, you haven't read the rest of the story. He lived a life of sorrow and struggle. Now, let me pause. Does this mean because you have made a mistake in your life or I've made a mistake in my life that that trail is going to haunt me down through the rest of my life? Not necessarily. Now, I am no one to go into your life and say, this is happening because of that, or this is not happening. I'm nobody to say that, and neither is anyone else. They don't know. But I can tell you, in David's case, and you have to hear me here, in David's case, the king's judgment was taken out upon him as a direct reflection of him being God's son to the nation. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, the nation was treated as the king behaved. And I could take all kinds of time and go through that. You just have to take my word for it. If you had a wicked king, the people would suffer. If you had a righteous king, the people would flourish. Because God dealt with the people as He dealt with the king. And God was going to make sure David never forgot his sin. As a matter of fact, there's a story over in 1 Kings when David was dying. You may read through your Bible periodically and come across stories and go, what is this? David was cold as an old, older man. And one of the only ways he could get warm was for them to bring a young girl in who was never married and she laid with David and he just kind of scooted up against her and became warm. That passage is very clear to say, and David never made a move on her. David was a broken, changed man at the end of his life. He wasn't a dirty-minded old man. He, God had broken him, and God had used him. But even when God forgives our sin, there still may be consequences. And then finally, even in our sin, God never, ever, ever gives up on us. Have you ever heard somebody say this? I'm through with you. I was listening to someone talk the other day. I'm through with you. 
Well, praise Jesus that He never says that about us. No matter how much we've messed up, He never stops loving us. And this is the depth and the gravity of His love. It's it's unfathomable. I mean, it's hard to get your hands around why and how much He actually loves us. Now, what I want you to do with me is take your Bible, either on your phone or the one in your hand, and I want you to turn to Psalm 103. And I want you to listen to this psalm on Father's Day as a man who has went through this struggle. Because David knew that he had a good, good father. Are you ready to read this with me? Psalm 103, I'm going to start in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. You ready? This is going to become real. Who forgives all your iniquity. And trust me, David says, I experienced it. Who heals all your diseases. And he experienced that. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Not with this ivory crown. He crowns you with His what? Are y'all reading it with me? His unrelenting love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Even when you're an older man. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. I know that about the life of Uriah and the life of Israel. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. And by the way, may I say that includes China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, and every other big nation that's in the world today. And let me include America. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, 
You mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word, bless the Lord all His hosts, His ministers who do His will, and bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What a word from a man about God. What a father we have. And aren't you thankful for him today? You have anything you need to say to him this morning? You need to confess? Maybe there's secrets in our life that we're not sharing. This is our time to tell God. Maybe if you don't have anything like that in your life, it's a great time to be thankful for our Father and what He has protected us from, what He does for us. But I'm going to give you just a few moments to respond to God. Will you do that this morning? Father, we come before you in silence now to speak to you. So as your people speak, may you hear our prayers. And Father, we thank you for truly being a good, good Father who provided a way of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross for the payment of our sin, which enables you and allows you to forgive us fully and completely. We are so thankful. Help us to serve you and to love you, to understand you, to come to know you more so that we can live our life free but yet in the fear of you. And thank you, Father, that even though we fail you deeply and desperately, that even in our darkest moments, your grace in Jesus Christ still reaches for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.